We made it. We're here. Good morning. Oh, you're not as excited as I am, but that's all right. You don't have to be. Hey, before I start, I, I want to very quickly distinguish between what is real and what is true. Let me tell you what is true. You are safe and you belong. That may not be what you feel. And what you feel is real. That, that's, a, that's a real feeling. But it's not true if you're hearing that whisper, I better be careful. I better not really give my heart. And I, I'm scared. You're safe here. And you belong. And I'm glad you made it. Let me ask you a question that'll help us as we have this conversation. How many of you were unpopular in eighth grade? I'm sorry to go right to really deep, horrible memories. Yeah. I thought that was a, a, better, a better question than how many of you were popular in eighth grade, and then you would feel actually hatred from us. But anyhow. Why, why do you think you were unpopular? Why were you unpopular, Peter? What do you think? They call me Mr. Decent. Mr. Decent, okay. Yeah. All right. I was uncoordinated. And uncoordinated. Okay, uncoordinated and a good guy. Well, I was the pastor's kid. Pastor's kid, sure. Who else? What do you think? Why, why were you unpopular? What? The way you looked. Okay. Yeah. I was Jehovah's Witness. You were Jehovah's Witness. So it was kind of weird. Yeah. That was a curious kind of thing. Did you have to go out on Saturdays? Yeah. 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 I may have met you. Anyhow. Um, I, I moved. Some of you guys know this story. You probably heard my, some of my story more than you'd care to. But I moved from Alabama to Colorado um, at the end, uh, in the summer, between fourth and fifth grade. And um, I, I can say that I, as a kid, I was pretty happy in Alabama. And I, 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 we moved in August, and so school started just a few weeks after I arrived in Colorado. And, and I didn't know that I talked real funny. I talked just like this. This is how I used to talk. And we'd say, we said things different back home. We'd say things like, hey, you want a Coke? What kind? You want an orange Coke or a grape Coke or a Sprite Coke? Because, see, Coke was just generic for a soft drink. And people up here, they said something really weird. They called it pop. And I thought that was weird. But I didn't know I talked funny. Until one day, about a week into school, I was, just, I was just out playing, and I was talking, and I thought I was having a good old time. And this boy, he came up, and he knocked me to the ground. And I can still remember, he had a brown penny loafer, and he put it on my face. And I learned how to talk differently pretty quickly after that. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what memories were conjured up as you thought about eighth grade. By the way, can I propose that perhaps one of these Sundays or Wednesdays, we just have an an eighth grade healing service and we can because I think some of us I still carry the pain I still like I don't have a lot of memories I can still see that shoe but here's what I know the reason you were unpopular 
It's because you were different. Simple as that. And in eighth grade, or fifth grade, or 21, or 65, you so desperately want to belong. It is, I believe, that context in which Jesus then shares these words we're going to read. It's the last week of Jesus' life. It's actually the last night. Jesus is, is like, like a man on death row. He knows that he is hours away from his execution. And he, he, you can somehow sense the desperation as he is imparting to his friends these last words that have a, a deep weight to them, knowing that he will soon be gone in the way that we've known him before, or they've known him before. So this is part of that, what we call the upper room, and let me read for you now these, these words, and then we're going to talk about it. It's found in John 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that was written in their law has to be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Advocate, or when the Helper, or when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they haven't known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I don't know if you've heard this passage before or how you perhaps even heard it today. I, I'll tell you how I most often have heard it. I, I heard it in this way. Non-Christian people will not like you, and so you ought to be scared of them and avoid them. I'll be honest, I, because I grew up in somewhat of a fundamentalist, or didn't grow up, but came to faith in Jesus in a somewhat fundamentalist environment, I had 
instilled in my DNA a fear of people who didn't talk Jesus. And I've heard or read this passage, I suppose, many times, and I haven't wanted to deal with um, a thought that sort of contradicted what I believe to be true about this passage, that it was talking about non-Christian people and how they were going to hurt me. I need to be scared of them. Because you see, the thought was this. Perhaps you, you've had this experience. If I were to ask you, who's hurt you more deeply? Non-Christian friends or Christian friends? Everybody might have different experiences, but my experience was that it was my friends who were Christian who I felt the deepest wounds from. And so I had to begin to rethink this word, world. You see, that's, that's the word that is perhaps the one that is a little confusing, that perhaps we can clear up a little bit. It's used a lot in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And it's an interesting word because it can mean different things. It sometimes can be talking just about this physical environment, this globe, this earth. Sometimes it's talking about people. Sometimes it's talking about a system, an unseen system, a power structure. Now, we do the same thing today. We, we use world in various forms. Did your parents or did you ever say to your kids, what in the world were you thinking? Which, by the way, is exactly the same sentence as, what were you thinking? World has no significance in that sentence. It just somehow adds a little gravitas to it. It makes you feel bigger. But it doesn't change any of the meaning. And sometimes we use the world to talk about earth or people. Or universe. But in this case, back to my point, I think, it could be wrong and I'm open to correction, but I think that the way Jesus is using it this time is mostly about a system. And it's a system of beliefs. Let's brainstorm. Let's see if we can kind of get our head around what some of those beliefs might be. This thing called world what are some of the beliefs that that system might have? I'll, I'll, I'll prompt you, I'll get you started. For instance, the world system would say that the more money you have, the more important and safe you are. I think that would be fairly true. What else might the world say? Here, just go back to eighth grade. What did it take to belong in eighth grade? Yeah. What's tonight? Anybody? Come on, people. It's the Oscars. It is the celebration of the beautiful. Right? We will parade them. We will spend my wife... I do not get this. She wants to turn it on at 5 o'clock. She wants to see what people are wearing. That is of a no, but I'm not judging my wife. I apologize. That sounded judgmental, and it probably was. But anyhow, she's not here. So, um, okay, so cool. 
cool is better than not cool, whatever that might mean. What else? What you wear can define, isn't that crazy? Yes. Can I, I, I know I shouldn't jump on everybody's comment. My wife and I, my wife left yesterday to go to Europe. She has a meeting there, and then she's flying me there on Wednesday. And before she left, speaking of what, again, I'm throwing her under the bus, my poor darling. She packed for me, which is marvelous. Do you know why she packed for me? Because she knows I do not care what I wear. She is afraid I will just show up like this. And she's got these important meetings. And so she'll own that it's important to her that I look presentable. I, I, yeah, it's not a... It's just, okay, she's under the bus again. Sorry, babe. Anyhow, you're getting the idea. that Exactly what was happening in eighth grade, in a sense, is still happening today. That same mechanism that seems unexplainable, intangible. But it is rigid. If you're too smart or not smart enough, if you're too good-looking or not good-looking enough, if you're not a good athlete, quite frankly, if you're not the proper weight, some of that is true today. It is in that that I believe then we begin to understand what Jesus is talking about by this really strong word that you heard seven or eight times, this word hate. What is hate? I think that hate is a response to a threat. It can mean other things, but I think what we're seeing is that often hate is a response to a threat. Your being different in eighth grade was in some way a threat to what is acceptable or to what is in or to who's allowed. This threat can be in a categorized as a sort of fear of scarcity. Perhaps you've heard conversations about scarcity and how much it, it infiltrates our thoughts and our lives. And for instance, this idea of a response to a threat, if you think about it politically, what if they, what if those people get into power? I'm not identifying which side you perhaps may or may not be on. It doesn't matter. I, I remember my, my, my friends who I really love, but I can remember during the previous administration, sometimes it felt like they hated. And I think they were just so afraid. And I, I sense that sometimes now with my friends who are from a different per political perspective. I, I, I sense this fear that if they get in power, what will happen? There won't be enough. In religion, it is the spirit of scarcity. What if somehow, what if God has limited love? What if God has, has just only one container of love and when it's gone, it's gone? And, and what if he loves people that I don't like? What if he, what if he likes them? What if he likes them? There, will there not be enough love for me? Socially, just, so, so they call it social capital as if it's a scarce resource. There has to be a limited number who get in. All, almost all exclusive clubs work on this mechanism. 
You're special because you got in. And what makes it special is really not so much about the fact that you're in, but the fact that others can't get in. But it's rooted in this, in this feeling of a threat. Most commonly, and we'll look some more deeply here in a moment at the passage, but what's interesting is most commentators that I read and who talked about this passage, all of them that I found talked about it in this causal way, that the reason you're going to be hated is because you're such a good person. The reason the world hates you is because you're so loving, and they're not, and that threatens them. And I, I kind of liked reading that and thought, yeah, I bet that's true of me. <laughs> if I didn't think too deeply about it. Back to my difficulty with this passage is, I love it when, when those people are the haters and I'm a lover. It's very easy to do. I, that's marvelous. As long as I don't acknowledge that sometimes I respond to a threat with this same system. And I'm not so sure that the experiences of being hated has been because I'm such a good and loving person always. So I'll say this, this is perhaps too simplistic for you, but I think it's deeper than this causal thing. I think that those of us who have identified with the person of Jesus, who have received and accepted and believed whatever words you put to that, I believe something changed in us, and I can't explain, on some molecular level. And I think that alone, now this will be a little mystical for some of you, I think that alone will put a target on you. Whether you do nothing, if you act no differently the rest of your life, I think the prince of the power of this universe, that system, will hate you. I think you're marked. I think you're a target. Hate is a staunch belief in conformity. The, the threat of nonconformity is so great that hate can be the response to nonconformity. Politically, it's almost become absurd that you can vote 95% of the time in agreement with X or Y party, but you deviate once or twice? That's unacceptable. Think about it, I don't know, but it's weird. Just, just, just examine as if you were a person who came from Mars, the American sports arena. Imagine observing as if you had never experienced it and you're watching people watch sports. And what they believe about their team and about the other team. And riots happen. Why? Because you're not wearing the same colors that those people are wearing. It's this idea that any, 
any disloyalty. Finally, and there's lots more, but one more I'll mention. His hatred is rooted, and we hear this in Jesus' words. And I hope you hear them compassionately. It's rooted in ignorance. It's rooted just not in not knowing, and sometimes not knowing is scary. He said it, they don't know me, and they don't know my Father. I think it's the same, the same tone as Jesus had hanging on the cross. You remember those words, right? Forgive them, Father. He's gonna say them in just a few hours. Forgive them, Father. Because they don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. I believe that the hate of Jesus is actually rooted in our anthropology. It's what we believe about people. In the passage, it it seems in maybe one summary, Jesus might be saying this. You see, I've taken away their belief that I'm not God because I did all these miracles. If a person were to observe me and and be intellectually honest, it, it seems fair and safe to say they must believe that I'm God because who other than God can do the things I've done? And Jesus says they have to believe, you just have to believe that I love you. Their hatred is not rooted in the absence of Jesus' love because he says, as he says in just a few verses before this, greater love has no one than this, that a person would lay down their life for their friends, and you are my friends. Jesus is going to go to the cross to prove that he loves us. Jesus proves, I think, in some very tangible way that he is God and that he loves us. That's not the offense. What is the offense? I think it's found here in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. My name. I am Savior. I've asked this question so many times, and it's gotten into me all kinds of trouble. I don't know why. But if Jesus is a savior, what does it imply? We need to be saved. And we can't do it ourselves. I think the offense of the gospel is that we can't save ourselves. I think you could be religiously very popular if you could describe to people the method by which they could save themselves. If you just did X, Y, Z, if you did one, two, three, you can make yourself into God. There's something in the human nature, I believe, that is offended by the recognition that I can't do this myself. So what's the answer? How, how, do, we, how do we live? What do, what do we do? We have this deep need, I believe Jesus is acknowledging, to be, to belong.
I think what is motivating him is found in verse 16 when he says this. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Falling away is a very common concept in the scriptures. It isn't talked about much today, I don't think. It can look like a person, and perhaps you've had these friends, I've certainly had these friends, who, who had incredibly exuberant and vibrant relationships with Jesus and loved to talk about him. And then you meet them a month or two months or a year later, and, and they would say, I've given it all up. I, I do not call myself a Christian. I am done with that world. Now, I've experienced that lots of times. More commonly, I think I've experienced people who continue and externally look exactly the same. But internally, they sit, and in their hearts, they said, I'm done. I don't want anything more to do with this God. And Jesus is saying, I don't want that to be you. I know you want to belong, but I don't want you to run away, fall away. What is the answer? What is the answer to this world that is going to hurt you and persecute you? We live in an historical anomaly, and I think many of us could recognize that. That for the most part, in the last couple of hundred years, those of us who live in the, within these borders, that the hatred we have experienced has been more socially motivated or socially has social consequences, but throughout history, it's had actual physical violent consequences to be a follower of Jesus. And I don't know, maybe that day will come again. We don't know. There are lots of places in the world today where while it's not our experience, that it is our brothers' and sisters' experiences, that if they profess with their mouth, I love Jesus and I need to be saved by him, it can cost them their life and will cost them their life. So what is the answer to this kind of hate? What do we do? I, I, I know the, the response you probably have, that the answer to hate is love. You're right, no question. But, but love gets used in, in a way that is nondescript. I don't know what people mean. I believe that what Jesus says is the answer, is truth. And, and let me say this, that we live in a time when Christianity seems to be divided into a couple of camps. There's the camp that is the love camp, and there is the camp that is the truth camp. And what is weird is, if, is somehow this belief that these are distinct and separate entities. I don't believe you can love without truth, and I don't think you have truth if you don't have love. I, have, I, I just ran across it this this week, I, 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 a, 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 a group, a group to which you can belong, but to belong you have, you have to conform, and one of the things you have to conform to is you have to agree, you have to sign, you have to sort of assent to this Facebook group, 
And the group is, I'm not one of those kinds of Christians. That's the name of the group. And I understand that. I understand that because, you see, I've heard lots of Christian friends talk about being persecuted and, and, and the world hating them. And they say it's because they love Jesus and they tell the truth. And I'm thinking, yeah, I think it's because you're, I'm trying to think, what's a word you can say in church? Um, <laughs> it's because you're being a butt. You're being ugly. They don't hate you because of Jesus. They hate you because of you. (laughs) Here's what Jesus says. It may not be what we would want, to be honest. It would seem like when Jesus is prophesying that we're going to be hated and possibly killed and hurt, Come on, wouldn't we love for him to go, and I'm going to send you a big brother who's going to beat those people up, and you're going to be physically safe. But our greatest enemy is not our physical well-being, but it's the stories we tell ourselves. This is what he says, but when the helper comes whom I always sent you from the Father, The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will tell the truth about me. Jesus' great protection is he's going to send the spirit who's going to tell you the truth. The truth is, what happened in eighth grade wasn't your fault. You're not defective. You're not disqualified. And as I began this morning, you're not an outsider. You're not weird. You're not an anomaly. You're not the one person in the room who if you told the truth about your story, nobody would love. That's just not true but it may feel real to you. The Spirit will guide you into truth. In other words, the Spirit is going to tell you a new story, a truer story. I am loved even though I'm not good. I'm as safe with nothing in the bank as the millionaire next door. I'm enough I'm enough. Jesus isn't waiting for me to become something so he will love me. I'm enough as I am. And I cannot, no matter, no matter how hard I have tried, I cannot separate myself from the love of God. No matter what I do or somebody else does, that is true. And then Jesus says something which is really different. And he says, in a sense, he says, and because of this truth, you don't have to run and hide. You don't have to to go into some cloistered existence to feel safe. Here's what you can do. And you will bear witness with me. In other words, you can re-engage 
You can be a loving, truthful person. And you belong. Let's pray together. I liked our, our time Peter led. I, I won't do it in exactly the same way, but I wanted us to have a moment to listen to the spirit of truth. And I, I'd like, if you can, what I want you to do is as we pray, eyes open, close, whatever you like, but all I want you to do is open your hands as a symbol of I receive this. This is the gift that is true. I'll pronounce this. I believe Jesus says to you, you are loved. You are safe. You belong. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you not only told us these words, but then you, you showed us what it looks like. You gave your body, you gave your blood. We cling to that. Amen. So, the words that we just listened to were spoken... We don't know exactly how long, but I guess just moments, perhaps, maybe an hour after the experience that we're recreating right now, where Jesus on that last night said, this is my body which is broken for you. When you do this, he said, remember me. When you, when you, taste, when you taste the wheat, remember you're safe. You belong. I love you. You don't, you don't have to do anything. You receive. And in the same way, he took the cup. The brown cup is the wine, and the white cup will be the juice. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant which was shed for you. Covenant this is simply maybe means a new deal. I got a deal for you. I will take care. I'll take care of you. It'll be all on me. So we invite you to come and to experience the blood and the bread. Everybody is welcome. Usually we take a piece of the bread and then we dip it. After you've given thanks. So Lord, we say thank you. And we invite you to come. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, angels or demons.
Neither our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.